The crusaders on the hillside are whispering prayers. It's a little after five o'clock in the morning and a spring dawn has just broken. Other than the prayers on the lips of these troops, everything is peaceful. A light breeze rustles the grass and crops on the rolling hills around them. From the small town at the bottom of the hill, cockerels crow to welcome the new day. And then there are the small sounds of this band of holy warriors who stand ready with white crusading crosses sewn to their clothes. Their few hundred horses let out little snorts and whinnies. Armoured knights, shifting in their leather saddles, clatter and creak. They're quiet because it's early. But they're also waiting for something. Or rather, for someone. Their leader is a nobleman called Simon de Montfort. He's a hardened warrior from a long line of crusading heroes. He's the Earl of Leicester, and he's the brother-in-law of the English king, Henry III. Simon is charismatic, bloody-minded, and highly religious. He inspires incredible devotion among his followers, and he has a talent for making them believe completely in the righteousness of their mission. Today, that mission is to fight in Christ's name, to defeat the enemies who are gathering their own forces at the bottom of the hill. Those enemies have many more knights and foot soldiers than the Crusaders. What they don't have is God on their side. When Simon breaks the quiet of the dawn with a rousing speech, that's exactly what he tells his men. Our cause is just, he cries. We fight for the honour of the Lord and the salvation of the Kingdom of England. His words pierce the hearts of everyone listening. To a man, they throw themselves down to grovel on the chalky soil, wailing and crying out and flinging their arms wide so that their bodies form crosses on the ground. Then they pick themselves up and start queuing up before a party of churchmen, led by two English bishops. The bishops and their attendant priests listen as each man makes a quick confession of his sins. This is the last rite to be performed before the bloodshed begins. The men are nervous. Not a single one of them has ever fought in a pitched battle before. The year is 1264 and the tales of the dramatic clashes of arms in the Plantagenet world half a century ago at places like Bouvines, Lincoln and Hattin are now just folk memories. But they know this. They've made crusading vows and they've confessed their sins. If they die today, they'll be whisked straight up to heaven. As Simon de Montfort's army finish their devotions and form up in battle order, they can see that, below them, the enemy army is shaping up. They can make out the fluttering banners and flags of its leaders. They can see a large windmill that the enemy generals will use as their command HQ. They can also see that, although they are the smaller force, they have by far the better ground 
They are at the top of the hill, so they'll be running down into the fight, while the enemy will be huffing and puffing their way up the slope. So in fact, the Crusaders don't just have God on their side, they've got the landscape too. A landscape they know well. These Crusaders haven't gone to fight the infidel in the Holy Land. They're in southern England. This time, the enemies of God are their own countrymen. The morning sun is now creeping higher in the sky. There's no more time to waste. Simon de Montfort, crusading leader, gives his final instructions to the commanders of the three divisions of his army. Then he gives the signal. Across the army, a roar goes up, and they start to advance down the hill. They go slowly at first, and then, as the enemy comes closer into sight and range, they start to run. Boots and hooves pound the earth. War cries pierce the air. Inside every knight's helmet, the pounding of blood in his ears must seem to thud like a drum. Finally, in a cacophony of screams and a clash of metal, the two armies collide. The first pitched battle on English soil since the civil war that ended King John's reign nearly 50 years ago has begun. It will be known as the Battle of Lewis, and it will be famous, or notorious, as the day that an army of crusaders, fighting on the pretty South Downs of southern England, took on a vastly bigger force, with consequences that rattled down the ages for hundreds of years. But it's more than that, too. The Battle of Lewis is the worst crisis the dysfunctional Plantagenet dynasty has faced since the dark days of the war without love. Because the enemy army Simon de Montfort is fighting is led by none other than King Henry III of England. Its other commanders are Henry's younger brother Richard and Henry's eldest son, the Lord Edward, heir to the throne and destined to become one of the mightiest warriors in Christendom. A crusade being fought in England rather than the Holy Land would be wild enough on its own. But this is even more astonishing. This bloody chaos is what you get when a royal family has completely imploded and is taking down the whole country with them. If you thought you knew just how bad the Plantagenets could be, I've got news for you. You ain't heard nothing yet. I'm Dan Jones, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. Season 4 of A Dynasty to Die For. Episode 1. A Simple Man. What I love about history is not just that it's full of amazing stories, but that these stories tell us so much about how we got where we are today. And if you're listening to This Is History, you probably agree. 
So that's why I'm pleased to recommend a podcast I think you'll love, Throughline from NPR. On every episode, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? Episodes take you on unexpected journeys through all kinds of subjects, like what history might have smelled like, where credit scores came from, and how China became a global superpower. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed, giving you a valuable perspective on a world that doesn't always seem to make sense. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. The Russian writer Leo Tolstoy once wrote that all happy families are the same, but each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Well, the Plantagenet dynasty, whose hectic world we've been living in for three seasons of this podcast so far, take that to new extremes. They're the family which constantly finds new, absolutely mind-boggling ways to be unhappy. In season one of this podcast, we heard about the struggles of the Plantagenet founders, Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, to keep their marriage afloat, their kids from running wild, and their empire from burning to the ground. In season two, we followed the sibling rivalry of their sons, Richard the Lionheart and John. Then last season, John took centre stage, like a one-man band of disaster who'd learned to play every tune in the Calamity songbook. Before, to the entire country's relief, John exited the stage with a bad case of dysentery. Those were all incredible stories, and if you're new to the podcast, first of all, welcome, and second of all, do go back and listen to those seasons, which are all free on the feed, and which will get you up to speed on what's happened so far. You can also subscribe and get every episode ad-free, including next week's as well as dozens of bonus episodes where we dive even deeper into the medieval world. But the story of this new generation of Plantagenets is, in my opinion, even better. Because this psychodrama reaches whole new levels of family dysfunction. It pitches together Henry III, a king unlike any we've seen before, with his brother-in-law Simon, his ferocious brother Richard, and his, frankly, terrifying son, Edward. As well as their calculating, charismatic queens, who are, and I'm sorry for this, almost all called Eleanor. Their story has rivalry, betrayal, fatal ambition, murder most foul, and civil war most uncivil. We'll have machinations, assassinations, and one very nasty case of genital amputation. What's more, beneath the drama, in this season, we're going to unfold a story that tells us so much about the foundations of Western history. This is the age when Parliament comes into being. When Magna Carta gains the legendary constitutional status it has today. When some of the most iconic buildings in world history are built. When rivalries between English, Welsh and Scots that still bubble away in British history today are really given some spite. So what I'm saying here is buckle up, because we're in for the mother of all rides. But where does that ride begin? 
Well, to answer that, we have to go back nearly 50 years before the Battle of Lewis, where we just heard Simon de Montfort and an army of crusaders thundering down a hillside towards Henry III and co. You're going to have to wait a bit to find out who stands victorious. It starts with getting to know the man at the heart of our story, Henry III. Henry isn't cut from the same Plantagenet cloth as our other leading men. While Henry II, Richard and John all had vastly different styles of leadership, they shared a ruthless, hard streak. Henry III, not so much. And it may have something to do with how he came to the throne. As we heard at the end of the last season, Henry was crowned in a bit of a rush when John kicked the bucket to send French King Louis the Lion howling back to France, tail between his legs. Henry was only nine years old. Now, you ask most nine-year-olds if they'd like to be king, I'm sure they'd tell you yes. The crown, the palaces, the unlimited power over life and death, and all that. But as Plantagenet history over the course of the Middle Ages will show us over and over again, actually making a child king is usually a total disaster. We'll get stuck into the long history of child monarchs on this week's bonus episode. For now, let's just say that there are a couple of things going on at once. First, you've got the psychological weirdness of the situation for the poor kid. Then, there's the tendency for cliques and factions to develop around the king, with courtiers trying to influence the child to follow their way of ruling, or using him to line their pockets with grants of titles and land, or some combination of both. As Henry grows up, he's partly being told what to do all the time, and partly having people making out like he's the greatest thing since sliced lampreys. On top of that, echoing in his ears throughout his childhood are the words of the great knight William Marshall. When Marshall was dying, he basically pleaded with young Henry not to turn out anything like his dad, the villainous King John. It may or may not be because of this that Henry grows up exceptionally pious and devout. Almost to the point of being, well, a bit weird. But it's not just dead daddy issues Henry's wrestling with. His mum, Isabella, very much alive, also abandons the poor little fella and goes to live in France with a brand new family. In any case, it turns out that by adulthood, Henry is not what you might call a dominant personality. Unlike his grandfather, Henry II, or uncle Richard the Lionheart, he isn't an imposing physical presence, so he gets pushed around by a long series of chief advisers who tell him what to do, rather than trying to get him to rule in his own right. He doesn't have the sharp, cruel streak of his father. He has a quick temper, like every other Plantagenet, but making smart, considered decisions doesn't come easily to him. The Latin description some of the people who know him use is vir simplex, or a simple man. He's a regular Joe, average height, 
No real distinguishing features except for a droopy eyelid. Not too clever, not much edge. He is, as I say, incredibly pious, and loves nothing more than giving gifts to monasteries, churches, poor people, lepers, you name it, in the hope that it will do his Christian soul some good. He has an artistic temperament, and he cries easily when he's moved. He's generous and good-hearted, he prefers peace to war, and he'd always prefer to do the right thing by other people. He listens. He likes to hear everyone's opinion. In short, there's nothing wrong with the guy. It's just being Plantagenet King isn't a Mr Congeniality contest. With enemies like the King of France around, you need to grab the world by the throat and give it a good shake. But Henry isn't a shaker. That ambitious Plantagenet streak was passed along to his brother, Richard. Richard is two years younger than Henry. He's wily and calculating. He's got some dog in him. He will, in time, become renowned as an extremely energetic lover of the ladies. He's absolutely committed to the Plantagenet project, but he's not above getting rich along the way. In other words, he's much more likely kingly material than Henry, and if we're being brutally honest, it's a pity he's not the elder of the two. Henry's advisers notice that Richard has a bit more bite to him, and so when both boys are teenagers, they send Richard out as a figurehead for England's armies instead of Henry. They think they're acting in England's interest, and from a military point of view, they are. But perhaps none of them have younger siblings of their own, because none of them see the dynastic crisis they've helped set in motion. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. The year is 1225. Henry is turning 18. He's still three years away from formally becoming a man. Like the drinking age in most US states, that's 21. But it's still a big number. And to celebrate, Henry, or rather his advisers, are giving his subjects a generous gift. It's a reissue of our old friend Magna Carta, the charter granted in very bad faith by John at Runnymede, ten years earlier. The version of Magna Carta thrashed out between John and his barons, and designed to limit royal power, has been tweaked and fiddled with. Some of its terms have been updated to make them fit for purpose in the 1220s. It's accompanied 
with a bonus gift, a reissue of the Charter of the Forest, which guarantees people's rights in royal forest land. These are nice things to have, lovely, in fact. But Henry, or again his advisers, currently led by an old pal of his dad's called Hubert de Burr, are not regranting Magna Carta out of the goodness of their hearts. In fact, this isn't so much a gift as a bit of a bribe. The thing is, young Henry's royal bank account needs an injection of funds. A very big one. Because last year, the Plantagenet government suffered a major foreign policy humiliation, which they urgently need to fix. Cast your mind back again to last season, and you'll remember we met a character called Louis the Lion, heir to the French throne, who invaded England, trying to set himself up as king. Well, now Louis's father, the Plantagenet nemesis Philip Augustus, is dead, and Louis the Lion is King of France in his own right, as Louis VIII. And he hasn't let go of the dream of snatching Plantagenet lands. England itself is a bit tricky, but there are still a few tasty treats on offer across the Channel, where the Plantagenets rule two big chunks of southwest France, Poitou and Gascony, which is all that's left of the old Duchy of Aquitaine. In 1224, Louis has sent armies thundering into Poitou and captured some of its most important cities. In 1225, he's rumoured to be eyeing up Gascony. That would be the last chunk left of the once mighty Plantagenet Empire in France, put together with blood, sweat and a lot of tears by Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. It's a matter of family pride as much as economic and political urgency that 18-year-old Henry and 16-year-old Richard don't sit idle while Louis steals their birthright. Here's where we run into an old story, though. Raising armies to attack or defend lands overseas is very expensive, and the English barons have grown very grumpy about being asked to help fund them over the years. So if Henry III wants some money, let alone an absolute stack of cash, he and his advisers have to find clever new ways to go about getting it. That's why in 1225 they dust off Magna Carta and dangle it under the noses of the English barons. The deal is this. Grant us a hefty sum of tax, and in return we'll update and confirm all the political concessions, the limits on government, the grants of rights, and so on, that were a part of Magna Carta when it was first devised back in 1215. There's precedent for all this, of course. In 1216 and 1217, when Henry was a little boy and the great knight William Marshall was running the show on his behalf, Magna Carta was reconfirmed twice, as a way of showing the good faith of the new government. Now Henry is about to turn 18 and become an adult ruler in his own right, he's been advised to repeat the trick. Throw the barons a bone and they'll throw you the money you need to pay for ships and weapons and mercenaries and all the rest of it. Henry, as we're going to find out in shocking detail over the next season, is nothing if not suggestible. So in 1225 he agrees that this sounds like a pretty good plan. 
give Magna Carta a shakedown and a rubber stamp, and watch the cash roll in. Which it will, but here's what Henry doesn't know. In agreeing to go along with a situation where you make kowtowing to other people's wishes a condition of spending their money on your wars, he's setting a precedent that will last for centuries. In fact, it'll lie at the heart of every English constitutional crisis for the next 400 years. What happens in 1225 looks like a simple piece of political give and take. In fact, Henry is setting himself, and many of his unborn successors, up for whole lifetimes of political pain. And then there's the setup of the army. Even though King Henry is turning 18 and Prince Richard is 16, it's Richard who's being primed as the leader of the army. Henry is bending to the will of his advisers to find the easiest possible route to get the cash. But the same advisers don't want Henry to go over and do the fighting. They seem to have seen in him something that many more people will also see over the years. This guy is just, how shall we put it, too nice for this stuff. Whereas his brother, well, he's a bit more of what we need. So in 1225, England, nominally led by nice guy Henry, but actually led by tough guy Richard, is getting ready for a crucial showdown in France. Henry's half-uncle, the old veteran William Longsword, bastard brother of King John, is tapped to go along and show Richard the ropes. They cross the channel to France with a well-equipped and well-supplied army and get ready to take on Louis VIII. And in a break, with almost all Plantagenet tradition since the turn of the century, they make a pretty good fist of it. They manage to drive back Louis's armies from the borders of Gascony and secure it for the Plantagenet crown. Military victories like this have been very few and far between since the heyday of Richard the Lionheart. So even if young Richard has a lot of help from his uncle, this is still a proper feather in his cap. He turns a tide that looked like it was going to sweep the Plantagenets out of mainland France once and for all. Reconquering Poitou turns out to be a bit too much for Richard, but even so, by December 1225, the news coming back from across the Channel is that his campaign has been a resounding success. Henry should be delighted, and, to a large extent, he is. His tax money has been well spent, the Magna Carta gambit paid off. But I think there's a little bit of Henry that can't help fantasising that it should have been him out there, leading his armies to victory. And that little bit of him is probably right. Because these are formative years for him and for his brother Richard too. And the differences between their temperaments and their early experiences of hands-on government will come to haunt them. What takes place over the next 12 years will be a very familiar story in the Plantagenet family. Brothers of different characters should do their best to band together to protect the crown and the family inheritance. But as the pressures of the job and the lure of power mount, Henry and Richard will find themselves on a path well-trodden by generations of Plantagenets before them. Because when Richard arrives back from France, his resentment against Henry 
and the shadowy figures pulling all the strings, will start growing. And as it does, he'll find the unlikeliest ally imaginable, setting them towards all-out rebellion. Find out who, next time, on This Is History. Now, if you can't wait to find out what happens next, then head over to This Is History Plus, because the next episode is already out. Starting this season, subscribers get episodes one week early, on top of getting all episodes ad-free, plus additional subscriber-only episodes. On this week's, I talk to my producer about Henry III's strange childhood and meet England's youngest king.